Last week we talked about uh, the Holy Spirit indwelling in us as being one of the key characteristics and marks of a disciple. And one of the things the Holy Spirit does, according to Scripture, is to convict us of our sin and of our need for a Savior. But that's not all the Holy Spirit does. So listen now as we turn to Paul in Galatians 4 and see that the Holy Spirit not only convicts but also confirms that indeed we who are in Christ are beloved sons and daughters of God. This is Galatians chapter 4 beginning in verse 4. So when the uh, set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under a law, under the law to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption into sonship. Because we are God's son, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a child of God. And if you are a child of God, then you are also an heir. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. For the last few months, I've decided to uh, work from home. Now, for some of you, you probably think, oh, that explains why I never see him. But I mean that metaphorically. For the last few months, I've decided to work from a sense of home and to work out of a sense of home. And when I talk about home, I'm talking about that very best sense of our identity as beloved sons and daughters of God. Now, I know you have to throw out the, the obligatory Robert Frost reference when you talk about home, that home is that place that when you go there, they have to take you in. But home, I think, is God-envisioned. A home with the very best of mothers and fathers is a place where I believe at least four things happen. The first thing that happens in, in a, a loving home is that the child will know that he or she is loved unconditionally. That there is nothing they can do or fail to do that would ever uh, separate them from the love of their father and mother. Another thing that a loving home provides is a sense of safety and security. When you are at home, you know that you are safe. You know that you are secure. A home also will provide uh, a sense of not just being loved, but being treasured. Being valuable, being precious beyond imagination. After the last service, somebody brought me up the verse from Isaiah where uh, God says to um, uh, the people of Israel in Isaiah 43 uh, that you are my sons and you are precious in my sight. And, and that's the sense that when you grow up in and, and, and a secure and loving home, you also get a sense of your great value. And the last thing that often um, a loving home will provide is a sense of uh, giftedness and a call and opportunity to act on your giftedness out in the world. In other words, home is the place from which you go. You're sent into, into life and you're sent better and stronger and you make positive contribution. Now, uh, I'm indebted to uh, Daryl, uh, one of our leaders in New Heights, to bringing to me these four characteristics, which have been written about uh, elsewhere. But I also think it's, it's more than just coincidence that on the day that more than 200 of our women from the sanctuary in New Heights and Riverside are at a retreat uh, this weekend, uh, that retreat is called Coming Home. Because I think home is one of the very best metaphors for someone who has a sense of identity and security, that they are loved, that they belong to God. And when you look at Jesus' life, I think you simply have to describe his life as always lived with a sense of home. Jesus always seemed to be at home no matter where he found himself. 
and found himself with people yelling at him, crucify him, or found himself with people prematurely uh, wanting to make him king so that he could defeat uh, the Roman Empire. You find him at home, whether he's greeting an outcast and inviting himself to dinner at the outcast house, or whether you find him in the home of the uh, wealthy and popular people. Jesus is equally at home at all times and in all places. And I am reminded of the late Dallas Willard and his observation that he sees in Jesus that Jesus believed that the world was a perfectly safe place in which to exist. Because Jesus, everywhere he went, found himself and experienced himself at home. He saw himself always as the beloved son or daughter of God. And I truly believe that as much as anything else marks a true disciple, one who knows that he or she is a son or daughter of God, one who in every situation operates out of a strong sense of home. Now, this is so important to me that in the last few months, I've sort of put in a, a, a home security system and I've wired different parts of my life to, to get a sense if, if I'm wavering from that sense of home, if that sense of home is being threatened. And so uh, I, I, I wire up my marriage, some of my key relationships, my job, and then a, a fourth area that I just call my sensibilities and sensitivities. But in these areas, I try to be acutely aware of if my sense of security and belovedness and value is being threatened. And then one of the things I've found after monitoring this home system for a while is I find typically a, there are about four triggers that are going to happen in these areas that indicate to me that I'm, I'm feeling vulnerable, I'm feeling shaky, uh, my identity is being threatened. Uh, the first one is uh, whenever I get overly defensive about something, when I get defensive, I know I'm not in a place of security. I'm not in a place of uh, identity. So uh, some of you know we have in our house a dog and two cats. And my family knows that I always quote to them from the Talmud, the writing of the rabbis, where the rabbis taught you should always feed your animals before you feed yourself. And so one of the first things I do in the morning is, is feed the two cats, put them in separate corners, and then keep the dog out of the way. But our cats like wet food in the morning, so I prepare the canned food, put it on a plate, uh, and mix a me- one of the cats needs medicine with it. And I do it in the very place where Pam makes her coffee and pours her cereal. Well, you know where this is going. So a couple weeks ago, she said to me, you know, David, it would really help if before I set out to fix my breakfast, you had cleaned all the tuna off that part of the counter. Well, when she told me that, the hairs on my neck stood up. Well, that's the only place I have them. Uh, but, but more importantly, it was, like, it was like my sense of worthiness and security in this relationship was being threatened. Like somehow she'd walk out the door because of a, a flake of tuna. And when I, when I get that sense inside, I know, wait a minute, I'm not really dwelling right now in security. And I'm over, overly vulnerable at uh, this point. Another place I find myself uh, when this uh, security system gets triggered is when I try to engage in control and manipulation. When people who are close to me or interact with me in my life, when I try to get them to do what I want in the way that I want it done, in the time that I want it done, I know that generally that's a sense of my insecurity, that basically I am not at home because I can't believe that God will deliver to me and send to me the things I need when I need them. So I'm going to have to go out and orchestrate that for myself. And so whenever I find that I'm engaging in manipulative or over persuasive arguing, I I pull back for a moment. I go, oh, right now I'm acting as if I don't 
have a home. My, my home is being threatened. Another thing uh, that gets uh, triggered for me, and this happens a lot at work, is um, when I'm too concerned about other people's opinions. When I'm, when I'm too concerned about other people's opinions, then it's, I'm needing them to tell me I have a home rather than to operate from that home. And it, it shows up in, in strange and sometimes little ways. A couple of weeks ago, uh, we had a woman from our congregation who was in hospice. And she was in her last days. In fact, the day I was there was, in fact, her last day. Um, and when I went and at, to the hospice um, uh, house and identified myself to the nurses, they said to me, well, uh, we haven't gotten her to respond all morning. You know, we just can't seem to wake her up. And, and I said, well, do you mind if I go in there and pray? And they said, of course not, because I know that whether people are unconscious or asleep, that, that they can grasp and they can, they can receive what you're saying. So I prayed over her. And I, I prayed and, and blessed God for her life, blessed God for those who love her, asked that God would comfort those who love her, asked that she would sense uh, God's loving presence, uh, the Father's strong hands carrying her even closer uh, in this transition to his presence. And when I prayed that, I was done. 45 seconds and I got nothing else. But I'm thinking, you know, the hospice nurses are probably thinking, if that pastor can only pray 45 seconds... What kind of pastor is that? And so I knew I hadn't been there very long, so I just kind of paced around the room for a little while before I walked back out. Sometimes when I'm overly concerned about what another person's uh, evaluation or opinion might be, I know that I'm really not secure in who I am, where I am. And then when it comes to the area of my general sensibilities, I realize that when somebody on uh, sports talk radio says something bad about my team, you know, or political ad runs with which I, I, I just completely disagree and I get offended. I realize that taking offense is clearly uh, from the fact that I'm not secure in the world in my place. And that if someone disagrees with me or sees the world differently than I do, that somehow that invalidates me as a person or shakes my place in the world. And it doesn't trust the Father to keep keep the world spinning on its axis and that I have to do it and everybody needs to agree with me and do it the way I do it so to keep spinning. And I want to tell you that as a, a Christian and as a Duke basketball fan, I get offended. To, I get an opportunity to be offended daily. You know, it's just, it's a, you know, I'm serious. You may have seen, uh, see it. There were the Venezuelan protests and somebody had a, an, a, a, a sign, you know, saying something very ugly about the government. And then they put and Duke underneath. Well, if you're gonna, the only reason you take offense at that is that somehow you think that that, um, that that gets to your soul and gets to your security and to your home. And so I've learned to watch these things when they get triggered. But here's what's really interesting. So when I go back and look at the security film, when I go back and look at kind of who's rocking my world, and I look at the camera and I look at the face looking back at me, I realize who the intruder is. The intruder's me. The fact of the matter is that my spouse, my critics, hospice nurses, people on the radio who disagree, they have no bearing on whether or not I'm a son or daughter of God. That got established from the beginning. In Christ, I am a beloved son of God. Just case closed. End of discussion. And when I think it's vulnerable, it has more to do with me than them or any situation. So what I've learned to do, and I just wanted to pass on to you, is I, I, when I'm feeling shaky, when I think my, when I'm acting more like an orphan than a, a beloved child, when I'm thinking I, I, my home is being rocked, 
I've learned to do three things, and just thought I'd pass them on to you. The first one is this. I have learned to say this statement and then follow it with a question. And the statement is, I am the beloved of God. I'm a beloved child of God. I just, I've learned to say that. I'm the beloved child of God. That's what God says at our baptism. You know, this is my son or this is my daughter. I'm pleased with you. I love you. I mean, so I can, I can say that biblically, theologically, I can say that. And I make that statement and then I ask this question, how does God the Father feel about me? Well, the fact of the matter is it doesn't matter what I've done or haven't done. The Father's not going to feel disappointment or embarrassment or shame. If I come up with any, any of those answers, then I've got the wrong God. And I told them the earlier services, something I'd read before, that you know, if you have a God who deals in shame and, and, dis, and uh, uh, disappointment and embarrassment in terms of the way God feels about you, you need to fire that God and get a different one. Because that's not the God of the Bible. Now, God may think that I need to make an adjustment. God may think I should and want me to handle things differently. But that does not change the joy that God feels in me. And the pleasure that God has in me. And the happiness that my existence brings God. I mean, those feelings don't change. So I've learned to say, first of all, I'm a beloved child of God. And how does God feel about me? And then when I'm secure in that, I can say, okay, what, what does God want me to do here? What's God thinking? And maybe I need to do something differently. Maybe I don't. That's the first thing. Second thing I've learned on either a note card, if you're old school like me, or on, on your uh, smartphone, I keep a list of the three to five people in life whose opinions of me really matter. Because a lot of the, the shaking that I, that I sense within me has to do with when I'm dealing with all sorts of other folks. And truth be told, rarely are any of them on that card or that list. So it's kind of, it's kind of good to get clear because the people who know you best also love you best. They know you're not perfect. That doesn't change their evaluation of you. And so, especially when things were a little shaky for me a few years back, I had uh, four people and my dog on that list. Well, it ain't true. When I come home, my dog's at the back door waiting for me to come in. And then follows me all throughout the house, and my dog has never seen me do anything wrong. Has no conception I could do anything wrong. Unfortunately, when I was in Africa, uh, my dog passed away, so God may be telling me to go ahead and put a person on that, on that list. Uh, but just, you know, get a sense of whose who's opinion really matters. Then the third thing that I do is when I get it right, when I'm living from home, when, God, when I feel like I'm partnering with the Holy Spirit, when God's doing things through me in this world, I celebrate it. I celebrate it. And I think, God, this is really good. I'm so glad that you love me. I'm so glad I have this opportunity. Wow, that really went well. And what I've learned is that, and this is hard for me, and so I'm working on this, but the more I celebrate... What God has provided for me in my home, and I've been able to launch from that home to go and to do, the more I celebrate that, rather than leading to an inappropriate pride, it leads to appropriate sense of identity. You know, I, I think we tend to live up to the expectations that are set in front of us, and if the expectation is, I am loved, and I'm going to respond always in a manner of somebody who is loved and knows that he's loved, and I celebrate that when it happens, and I set that bar, I tend to live toward that bar. So those things, those things help me. But sometimes, sometimes I'm not the one shaking my world. Sometimes it really is. Somebody else is kind of getting in there. It happens. 
I want to tell you a story, and this story is from history and tradition. And I know some people get offended, so I'll just put this out front and say, it's pretty clear from history and tradition that Jesus was not the first rabbi who did miracles. That there were other great rabbis, beloved of God, not God's son, but beloved of God, who did. And one was a guy named Honi. I mean, you can look him up, H-O-N-I or O-N-N-I-A. I mean, you can look him up different ways. But uh, Honey was uh, so well-known and so beloved uh, that when people in Israel had a need, they would come to him. And, uh, and one of the things he was so beloved is he had a real personal relationship with God. Uh, just more so than the, than the scribes and the, and the teachers and the Pharisees. So when the, the country was in a drought, the people came to him to pray for rain. So he went to God and he said, you know, God, I'm, I'm a child in your house and, and your family needs rain. Nothing. So Honey draws a circle. and you, You've probably heard the story. Draws a circle around himself. Basically tells God, God, I'm a son in your house. Your people know rain. Now I'm going to stand in the circle till it happens. So a few drops start to fall. Honey basically says to God, God, I, you know, I'm a son in your house. Your people need rain. We need more than this. We need it to fill the, the dry riverbeds. Uh, we need it so we can have the crops. And so I mean, it starts to just pour down and, and flood. And so Honey stands in a circle and basically says, you know, God, I'm a son in your house, and that's way too much. Rain like that, and it'll wipe out our crops. It'll destroy our land. And sure enough, standing there, then a steady rain falls. And as the story goes, Israel is brought out of its drought. Even Josephus writes this in his writings that this took place. It's amazing. But what's also amazing is the Pharisees got mad about it. They basically said, you can't talk to God like that. That's presumptuous. And uh, what happened was the Pharisees, in our words, wanted to excommunicate Honey from the faith. But the people got between the Pharisees and Honey and said, you're not doing this. Because they saw in him somebody who had that personal, loving relationship, who knew he had a home in God and acted out of that home. And they wanted to keep that alive. Disciples live from home. A few weeks ago, I was talking with a group of pastors in Houston about this concept. And, and later that week, one of the pastors emailed me back and he said, I had this thought that there are Christians who, uh, who understand and know their salvation as the freedom of a pardoned prisoner. And then he added, and there are Christians who know salvation as the freedom of a child adopted into a loving family. And then in his next sentence he wrote, there is a big difference between the two. Agreed. The former, understanding of ourselves pardoned from sin, is true, it's accurate, and it will get you on the road to discipleship. But the latter, knowing that that same spirit that's convicted you of sin and pardoned your sin in Jesus has adopted you into the family. That spirit gets you further down the road of discipleship.